Please stand for the reading of God's word. We have heard Jesus' prayers for his disciples. Now Jesus prays to the Father for himself. John 17, 1 through 5, the high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Bibles open to John 17 as we pray together this morning. God, we pray that as we open your word together today, that you would give us wisdom, that you would help us to hear your voice, and that you would draw our hearts to you for having heard your word of hope in these opening verses of the high priestly prayer. Lord, be with us this morning, dwell with us, dwell in us by your spirit in order that we might receive the gospel today and praise you for it. We ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Most great stories that you've read or watched in your lifetime, the main character has a clear objective. As the story sets in motion, there's some conflict that drives the main character to achieve some goal, to defeat some enemy, or to escape some threat. In The Lord of the Rings, which we never talk about around here, Frodo's mission is to destroy the one ring and the evil force that is bound to it. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pevensey children fight to defeat the White Witch. It isn't always, it isn't always that easy to define the, the main objective as those examples, but the conflict in a good story establishes an objective that we can root for. In our lives, though, it is rarely so black and white. Most days, we just get up, we go through a morning routine, we go to work or go to school, we have meetings, we spend some time with friends or family, and then we do it all again the next day. We just sort of chug along, not necessarily aimless in life, but typically not driven by a singular lifelong pursuit. It rarely feels like there is any single all-consuming objective that is the reason that we get out of bed every single day. But as we see here in John 17, Jesus is not like us. He was driven, fixated even, on a single objective, and his whole life was devoted to achieving it. He took on flesh for one purpose. He lived a sinless life for a single objective, and he died a substitutionary death in order to accomplish it. He never wavered from it. He never stumbled as he strode toward it. Every day of his life and even every moment 
was a focused step toward accomplishing what he came to do. He never wasted a second, and he never relented even for a moment. The passage that we're looking at this morning helps us to see that, and it reveals to us exactly what Jesus was driven to do with his life. This morning, as we resume our study of the book of John, we come to a famous and beloved passage of Scripture that has come to be known as the high priestly prayer because of the way that Jesus serves as a priest for his people. Both the 11 disciples who were there to hear it and all those who would come after them and receive the message of the gospel by faith. Jesus is our priest who enters into the most holy place in God's presence in order to atone for our sin. He is the mediator who sheds blood in order to propitiate God's wrath and extend grace to his people. But in these opening verses of this high priestly prayer, Jesus demonstrates why it is that he takes on this priestly role, this priestly role that would cost him his own blood, and why he is qualified to be the very last priest offering the very last sacrifice. It is the longest of Jesus's prayers that is recorded for us in any of the Gospels, and it occupies the entirety of John chapter 17. Even though Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer during his life and ministry, very little of his actual prayers themselves are recorded for us. This is perhaps because so much of his time in prayer was spent in silent, solitary communion with his Father. Throughout his life and ministry, Jesus often withdrew to pray and commune with his Father, something which is all by itself instructive to us. If the Son of God, eternally united with the Father and the Spirit, and completely uncorrupted by sin, makes prayer a daily priority, how much more should we, who struggle against sin and long to be near to God? Jesus made a point of prayer And because we have so little of it to learn from, Christians have long held John 17 as a unique and precious encouragement and an indispensable glimpse into the nature of the relationship between the Father and the Son. But even more than that, it is a model to us of the sort of thing that Jesus is doing even now as we speak. As Paul explained in Romans 8.34, where he wrote that Jesus is even right now at the right hand of God interceding for us. For those who abide in Christ, as he said in chapter 15, who rejoice in his salvation and cling to him by faith, this is the prayer of our Savior for us every moment of every single day. Though the work that he came to carry out to justify us is finished, his work as our priest to seek our blessing continues. And here in these verses, he displays his heart for his disciples and the prayer that he will continue to lift up for them and for us. So in this prayer, we can first observe that Jesus is both teaching and comforting his disciples. He does not withdraw to pray in solitude as he typically does elsewhere and at other times in his ministry, but he's praying aloud along with them in their presence so that they will hear what he asks his father to do. I'm sure that he prayed for them at other times when they didn't hear what he was saying, when they didn't hear the requests that he was making on their behalf. But I'm sure that you know from your own experience that there's a difference in the way that those prayers can encourage us 
When we are facing uncertainty or difficulty, hardship in life as the disciples are about to, it is a comfort to hear a brother or sister say, I will be praying for you. But there's something more encouraging, more comforting when we get to hear their prayer, when we get to hear their pleas on our behalf, when they ask God to do mighty things for us. When we get to see their love and their friendship displayed in the way that they pour out their heart before God for us. Though the disciples are certainly still confused about what is about to happen, they will be shocked when Judas arrives back on the scene with Jesus' enemies. They will be shocked to see it and to see what unfolds. And when it does happen, Jesus wants them to remember this prayer He wants his priestly work before the Father to be their strength. So this prayer is how he is preparing them to face the forces of evil that are about to be unleashed in the city of Jerusalem when he is arrested and taken away in chains, when their worst nightmare comes crashing into their lives. He prays among them because he wants them and all of his people to be encouraged and to learn from it. It is a theologically rich prayer. It's dense It's cerebral, it's subtle, and it can be difficult at points to understand. And there is no direct instruction in it, but it does teach deep and eternal truths about God, who He is, and what He does. Martin Luther, writing in the 16th century, said of this chapter of the book of John, "'This is truly and beyond measure a warm and hearty prayer. Christ opens the depths of His heart.' both in reference to us and to his Father, and he pours them all out. It is so deep, so rich, so wide, no one can fathom it. He considered it too deep for any of us to truly comprehend in this lifetime. While studying to prepare for the message this morning, I read that one pastor spent 45 consecutive Sundays preaching through John 17 alone. (laughs) We're not going to do that. But a person could spend their whole lifetime meditating on these 26 verses and not come to the end of what might be learned from them, or to the bottom of the insight that they offer into the heart of Christ and the hope that we have in Him and the nature of God Himself. So we will not spend 45 weeks here, but over the few weeks that we are here working through John 17, we will be blessed, as the disciples were, to hear the Son of God and our Savior praying for us. It is the crescendo of this book that will culminate in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when he will achieve the goal for which he came to dwell among the world that he created. This is the day that he was born for. Jesus signals that in this chapter's opening verse, when he lifts his eyes and says, Father, the hour has come. For most of the book, beginning way back in chapter 2, Jesus has stated clearly that his time has not yet come. That same thing is repeated in chapter 7 and chapter 8, but in chapter 12, something changes. Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the last time. He arrives in Jerusalem for the Passover week, and he announces that his hour has finally arrived. It is the moment that his whole life and all of creation have been anticipating And he prays, Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. The disciples, hearing this, were probably excited. 
So we've seen already in this book, they have a misguided understanding of what Jesus is here to do. They have asked him, Mark chapter 10, Lord, grant us to sit at your right hand and your left in your glory. For them, the very most glorified people are kings and emperors and rulers who sit high above everyone else. That is what they've seen. And so that's what they picture in their minds. And they figure that because they are Jesus' closest friends, they'll benefit from that proximity. They envision Jesus being crowned the king, ascending to a a throne and ruling over the world in the power that he has displayed throughout his ministry. So when Jesus says, Father, glorify your son, their interests and their expectations are very high. But what Jesus asks for is not what they envision. He will be glorified, but not in the way that they expect. He will receive a crown and ascend to a high place, but it will not be the coronation that they anticipate. Instead, he will receive a crown of thorns, and he will rise to a prominent place, lifted up on a cross on the hill of execution. For the disciples, it will look like defeat, but for Jesus, it is the hour of glorification. For the disciples, this was confusing until the Holy Spirit caused them to understand it. And if we are to grasp what they struggled with, to grasp, to understand what they failed to understand as Jesus makes this prayer, we need to take a step back and ask what glorification means here anyway. We don't want to misunderstand or misconstrue what Jesus is praying for as the disciples so often do. So first we can say we know one thing that Jesus most certainly does not mean. Jesus, in praying that the Father would glorify him, is not asking that God would add something to him, to make him better somehow, or to increase his significance. He isn't hoping to become more holy or more worthy of praise. He is already supremely holy and infinitely worthy of praise. What Jesus is asking when he prays to be glorified is that his Father would reveal what is already true. He is praying that others will see what his Father sees, that he is holy and glorious and worthy of praise and honor. Earlier this week, Pastor Bruce shared a helpful illustration with me about this point. If you see a beautiful painting, a masterpiece by a visionary artist, one that captivates your attention and moves you to tears with its beauty, you do not glorify it by getting out a paintbrush and adding something to it. In fact, it would be a terrible tragedy for you to do that, to attempt to improve it somehow. Instead, you glorify it by going and telling someone else, you have got to see this. It will change your life. It's so amazing. And then bringing them to see it for themselves. That is what Jesus is asking the Father to do, that he would reveal to the world the holiness and the beauty and the worthiness of the Son. Now, hearing that, someone might say, well, that's an awfully selfish, prideful thing for someone to pray for. And if it were any of us making that prayer, I would agree with you. If any of us were praying, Father, glorify me, I would agree with you. That would be an awfully selfish and prideful thing to ask God to do. But coming from Jesus, it is supremely selfless for three reasons we'll cover quickly. First, because of who he's praying for. Jesus is the holiest, most satisfying, most worthy person. 
This prayer is appropriate for him to make and good and even loving because it is Jesus making it. It would be cruel for him to know what is best, to know what is most supremely satisfying and most holy and to say nothing. For us, it is humility and it's a good thing because we are not ultimate, but Christ is. So it is his love that compels him to draw people toward what is ultimately best for them rather than doing nothing while people struggle through life with continually disappointing imitations of his glory. Secondly, it is selfless because of how the Father will reveal the goodness and glory of the Son. It will come in just a few hours when Jesus is crucified. In that moment, the love and the justice and the holiness of Jesus will be displayed vividly. In a way, that will even make a hardened Roman soldier proclaim, surely this was the Son of God. Jesus' prayer to be glorified shows his willingness to suffer and die for his people, and that is hardly selfish. And third, it is selfless because of what Jesus asks to be glorified for, the reason, the basis for his prayer. He says, Father, glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. Jesus is not ultimately focused on himself. His prayer here in the opening of John 17 reveals that he is like the friend who has brought us along to see the painting that so captivates him. He wants to point people to the Father, to tell them, you've got to see this. It will change your life. The opening of Jesus' prayer teaches something to us about not only Jesus' heart, but also about the very nature of God. The Bible reveals that he is not singular. He is not solitary, but he is also not plural. He is one God in three persons, a trinity. We can and we should spend our whole lifetime considering that and standing in awe and wonder of the Father and the Son and the Spirit who exist in eternal harmony. And Jesus' prayer here helps us to do that. The Son is passionate about declaring the goodness and glory of the Father. It is his life's ambition, the animating principle of his every single day and the very center of his heart. That is the goal that energizes Jesus every day, to bless his people by pointing to the glory of his Father. It is the animating principle of his life. And at the same time, we see that that is what the Father and the Spirit are driven by as well. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit exist in an eternal, selfless joy in the glory of one another. So the mission of the Son in taking on flesh to live among his people is to be glorified for the, by the Father when on the cross all his love and all his perfection and all his holiness is displayed so that he could in turn bring his now redeemed people with him to see and savor the manifold perfections of the Father. That is his goal, his mission, his modus operandi, whatever you want to call it. It is the heart of Christ that propelled him in every moment of every single day of his life. And that same affection describes the Father's relationship with the Son. In his excellent book, Delighting in the Trinity, which I commend to all of you to read, Michael Reeves explains it this way. Ultimately, 
The Father sent the Son because the Father so loved the Son and wanted to share that love and fellowship. His love for the world is the overflow of His almighty love for His Son. The first thing I think we should note as we read the opening verses of the high priestly prayer, the first thing that should come just crashing down on us as we consider these important words is that Jesus' love is first and foremost for the Father, and we are swept up in it. We are brought along with Him in His joy in the Father. I think that we often think, perhaps subconsciously, that we are the center of the story. We think of God's work a little bit narcissistically, making assumptions about what drives Him to act and to accomplish our salvation. A passage that helps make this point is Romans chapter 3, verses 3 through 26. In those verses, the Apostle Paul outlines the gospel message as the good news that even though all people stand condemned before God because of sin, they can be declared not guilty. That is not because of anything that we do or any good behavior on our part. It is because of the saving work of Christ on our behalf. So he writes, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That is why the good news is truly good, because in sin we stood under the wrath of God, but Jesus gives us a great gift, mercy that comes by his willingness to receive that wrath in our place, to divert the judgment of God onto himself. But Paul continues, this all of the gospel that we just reviewed, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul announces that the good news of Christ's work to avert the wrath of God and give his people redemption, and then he says that this was to show God's righteousness. The work of Jesus Christ, which is our salvation, was first and foremost purposed to display something not about how wonderful we are, but about how wonderful God is. Let me say, I've got to say that one more time. The work of Jesus Christ, which is our salvation, was first and foremost purposed to display something not about how wonderful we are, but about how wonderful God is. He is the God who does not and cannot sweep sin and evil under the rug and pretend that it never happened. Even the sin of people in antiquity, long before the death of Christ, was not ignored. In his grace and righteousness, the Father did not neglect it, but withheld his wrath in order to pour it out on his Son instead. And as he does, he reveals himself to be not only perfectly just, upholding his holiness and answering all evil that has ever taken place in the history of the universe, and also perfectly merciful, the justifier of his people. The gospel The message of hope which saves us is not about us. 
It is good news to us, not merely because by it we avoid God's wrath, but also because by it we come to know him as he truly is, to savor and rejoice in his righteousness and his goodness toward us. The work of Jesus is like that of a friend who not only brings us to behold the painting, which is so beautiful that it changes our lives, but also pays with his own blood in order to help us see it and enjoy it for ourselves. And it's important, I think, for us to get that, because if we don't, we will be angry with God when he doesn't protect us from the threats that we face in life, or when he doesn't heal the illnesses that we will encounter in life. If we allow ourselves to think that we are the center of the story, Jesus will seem to us to be a very unimpressive Savior. But if we look with Jesus at what he most treasures, the glory of his Father, we will rejoice to receive the gift of salvation so that we can spend eternity with him, enjoying it alongside him. This is the love for the Father that compels him. And it is this fellowship that Christ brings his disciples and all of his people into. That's what he's pointing to at the end of this passage. I have glorified you, Father, on earth, he says, the ministry of Christ. And his impending death and resurrection will testify to the righteousness and the excellencies of his Father. And now, Father, he says, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is pointing to the fact that before this world or any of its people existed, before history itself had begun, he was there with the Father, enjoying him in glory. So we are not the center of the story. But by his love for us, we are swept up into that eternal, joyful fellowship. And at the center of this passage, Jesus makes a point to his disciples. It's for them, specifically. I say that because even though he's praying to his Father, he explains something in verse 3. Now, God the Father doesn't need anything explained to him, so I think we can conclude that Jesus is saying this for the benefit of the disciples and all who would read it. Afterward, he says in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's not how any of us would have defined eternal life. We hear the word eternal or everlasting, and we think in terms of quantity. That's why our response to the promise of eternal life is often so tepid. We think of it as just more of the same. This life, but on and on and on, forever. It's hard for us to visualize anything other than what we know, so we just assume that it will be like this, but a lot more of it. Jesus defines it differently, and in a way that, if we rightly understand it, will cause us to rejoice, to truly rejoice. The life he gives is first and foremost not a matter of quantity, but of quality. It is the restoration of life before sin when Adam and Eve walked with God in his very presence in the garden, when there was no shame, no fear, no anxiety, no unfulfilled longing. That is the life that Jesus promises to his people, and he describes it here by saying that life, that life, is knowing God. The late J.I. Packer once wrote, what were we made for? The deepest question of all the deepest thinkers who have ever lived. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. 
What is eternal life that Jesus gives knowledge of God? What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, more delight, and more contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. It is what all of Scripture was designed to accomplish and what passages like Jeremiah 31 identify as the pinnacle, the very highest objective of God's redemptive work among his people. In that chapter, Jeremiah chapter 31, God promises that he will, in his love for his people, that he will do many good things for them, that he will always remain faithful to them, that he will rebuild them, reestablish them, and richly bless them, that he will cause them to sing and shout with cries of great joy, that he will gather together his war-torn people, and that he will protect them and establish a new covenant in blood with them that will be a sure sign to them of his everlasting blessing and faithfulness. This chapter is absolutely full to the brim of God's promises for the assurance that one day all their mourning will be turned to joy. And those promises, each of them is a reason to worship God. Add them all together, it's hard to imagine something that could top it. But at the end of the chapter, God makes an even greater promise than all of the others, and even establishes that this promise is the foundation on which all the others stand. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. The pinnacle of God's salvation is not merely a longer-lasting life, but a better one fulfilled by what it was designed for, to rejoice in knowing God forever. So we might summarize Jesus' petition in the opening of this prayer like this. Father, reveal my excellencies to the world so that I can bring people to see yours, to know you and have the same joy that I do in your very presence. His prayer is a petition, an appeal for the intervention of God to come and do his work. And it is also a proclamation of the truth of the gospel message of salvation and a revelation of God's nature. It instructs the disciples as they set out to do the work that he is leaving for them to do. Because like Christ, they will encounter opposition and rejection. They will be abused and scorned. And they will remember this prayer. And with him, they will look beyond their affliction to the promise of joy that stands just beyond it. They will know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent and have eternal life in him that is not corruptible by any threat that they will face. Like Christ, they will glorify God with their ministries, their testimony, and even their blood. When the day comes that everything else, everything is taken from them, they will proclaim to the world with their lives, with their words, and even with their blood that they know the author of life who has shown them grace and brought them into his presence. Like Christ, they will prove by their lives the righteousness and the glory of God. That is the message of this passage, not only for the disciples, but for all Christians. We receive the proclamation and the promise of these opening words of the high priestly prayer with the same calling that the disciples received. 
to endure the hardships of life in a world that rejects him and his gospel, while faithfully proclaiming in the hope and expectation that God will display his glory and the goodness and bring his people to saving faith. We become the friend who has seen the beautiful painting and who now brings others to see it for themselves so that they can be captivated as we are. The single, life-consuming objective of Christ to bring people into the presence of God becomes our single, life-consuming objective. Jesus models for us that the objective is joy in the presence of God that we can rest in and that we can lead others to receive. Like the disciples, we endure the hardships that come from this calling, that come along with this calling, because as we do, we testify with our lives that God is worth everything that we have to give. We reveal with our lives, with our words, and even with our blood that our God is glorious. His Son is a greater treasure than anything we own here, and the message of the gospel is a greater security to us than anything that we might stand on here. In our neighborhoods, our workplaces, among our peers and our families, our friends, this is the calling, to take up the mission of Christ, to follow him in pursuit of the single, all-consuming, life-defining goal of glorifying God by revealing his glory in the message of the gospel and our willingness to lose everything else in pursuit of him. That is our hope and our supreme joy. It is the way we best love our neighbors and our friends, and it is how we best honor God by proclaiming with our whole lives that he is holy and worthy of all that we have to give. That is Christ's testimony to us and our testimony to the world as we take up the mission handed from him to the apostles and then to each of us who are redeemed and brought near to the Father, brought into his presence to enjoy him forever by the blood of his Son. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray. Be with us today as we meditate on the opening of the high priestly prayer. Cause these words to bear fruit in our lives as we follow in the footsteps of Christ. Give us not only courage to go where he leads, but joy to do so because of the display of your worth and your righteousness. Give us joy to know that we are loved best by being brought into your presence, to know you and to be known by you, and help us to embody that towards others, to leverage our lives, to bring people near to you and reveal your love and glory to them. We praise you today in the name of your Son who has brought us into your presence. Amen.